Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. Uh, we are taking phone calls today. Well, not phone calls. Why do we even call that anymore? We are talking to folks on Zoom. Eventually, we're going to find another way to do this um, because all we're doing by using Zoom is um, aiding the CCP in taking over the world, <laughs> basically. So we'll we'll find another, another way to... Uh, to do it but right now, we're using Zoom, and um, Rich posted the instructions for that, and uh, uh, I think we have at least one person, uh, maybe more, uh, two people lined up. Um, so if you'd like to do that, unfortunately, you sort of need to have Twitter. <laughs> That's sort of, don't know how else you could do it uh, to be able to do that. But before we take the phone calls, real quick, I just I will try to remember to link. Uh, to the um, video I'm about to mention to you real quick. Um, I I don't know why I didn't recognize all of this, but um, when I ordered my last project with Jeffrey Rice, which is the beautiful Hebrew text that I'm going to be using uh, in um, next month at G3, um, and maybe I'll have it for the debate with Gregory Coles. I'm really doubting we're going to need to be getting into the Hebrew of Leviticus, but if we do, I'll, you know, maybe I'll have it with me that night. But when I was, we were talking about what I wanted it to look like, uh, Jeffrey asked me, what, how do you want the pages dyed? And I didn't really know what he was referring to. And in hindsight, it was obvious. I think it was... There's a certain other rebinder, um, Allen, Allen Rebinds, that um, now in hindsight I realize they they dye their when they have gold edging they dye those red a special kind of red and that's sort of their mark. And I had one I had given it to my son-in-law but I I had one, um, and I don't know why I didn't think about it I, I noticed it but I, it just didn't really register. And then the one that Jeffrey gave me as an honorarium for speaking in Tullahoma back in February, um, it likewise had a color to it. I think it was red as well. And I don't know how I didn't ask, you know, think to ask, because when he said, what do you want the pages dyed? I'm like, I'm not sure what that means. And then he sort of explained it to me, and I'm like, well, we're, we're doing black and purple and so let's do purple. Can you do purple? Yeah, I can do purple. Okay. So I get it, and it's just it's just beautiful. You open, you know, when you're when you're looking at it normally, it looks just like this um, Tyndale Greek New Testament. It's gold page edging, just like you'd normally have. But then when you open it up, it's purple. And so I had while I was traveling, went online. I saw somebody else did a video on it, and I'm watching it, going, "Oh, okay." And so I contacted Jeffrey and asked some questions about supplies and what kind of ink he uses and stuff like that. He says, I'll, I'll do a video on it. And so he's done that. I, I need to try to remember to um, put uh, a link to that for everybody to take a look at. Because what I've been doing since then, since I got home and I've ordered the, the inks that I, I wanted and stuff like that. In fact, I should have uh, another color waiting for me at home. Um, you'll normally see a brown NASB 77 back here, but it has orange ribbons in it. And so I'm going to be doing an orange on the page edges for that. But I took 
you know, normally back here is this Tyndale House Greek New Testament. So I took this home and I did the page edges. And so it would normally when I would open it up, you just sort of, you know, you open up a standard gilded edge and it's sort of the the you can still see the gold, but it fades out basically. And so when I open my now you can see page edges are red uh, to match the cover that I have uh, on this Greek New Testament. And it's not difficult to do. Um, so I've, I've watched two videos, some other guy, and then I did everything that Jeffrey said to do, basically. Because um, I'm doing his Bibles. So I'm not sure. I guess that was important to do. But... Um, your wife or you, if you're the lady of the house, um, I'm not sure if we should allow ladies to do this. They're like, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to get into that. Um, but um, <laughs> Rich is, yeah, I'm staying out of that stuff, man. Like, no, 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 not touching that one with a ten foot pole. Um, and uh, <laughs> your wife probably has. Everything you need, uh, not the inks, but the um, you're just using standard the the wedges for applying makeup, and you've got these um, oval pads to take some of the excess off afterwards, uh, and that's pretty much it. That and the uh, the ink pads and reinkers, and for an entire color, it's like twelve bucks, um, something like that. Um, uh, Ranger ink. Uh, Ar archival ink, I think is what it's called. And, um, so, you know, so once I found how to get those, it's pretty easy. So real quick, this was one of the first, um, bound texts that I had made. Actually, this was the first bound text I had made. Okay. Um, it's a UBS third edition corrected Greek New Testament. It's the first one I had made. It's so old that I, I walked into the bedroom and I read the phone numbers that are still in the front of this to my wife. And she's looking at me going, yeah, rings a real faint bell. Uh, these, these were the numbers. This was the, the one number it scratched out was the number we had when I lived with my parents after we got married for like six months. And then the second number was the number we had at the apartment. Um, and so this is, this is old. This was just standard white paper. And so I did it in a yellow, uh, color and it really makes it nice. And this is 19, this is, uh, almost, it's almost 40 years old. Uh, this one right here, it's quite old. And then this one, this one you can now buy, it's called Biblia Sacra, you can buy a Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament bound together from United Bible Societies. I think they use the Nestle text. But they didn't have, back when I wanted this, they didn't have that. And so I've told the story before, we had a Jehovah's Witness fellow who was a bookbinder, and so it was a way of having contact with him and you know, being a witness to him. And so he took a UBS text and the small Bibli Hebraic Astutgartensia, and he uh, 
he had to shave some of the edges of the Bibli Hebraica to make the, them fit, and then he bound them together. So like I said, they, you don't have to do this anymore. You can buy it in this way. And then he did try to gild, you see the reflective? He tried to gild the pages, but it never worked all that well. It was not like, you know, the mirror shiny that you've got on something like that. It was there, but it never worked all that well. And so I did this and did it in the same yellow as the other one there. Um, and it actually improved the, the guild-looking part of it. Uh, but again, we're talking nearly 40-year-old text here. And it really, it's a neat little thing. It's so old. Here's my uh, Hebrew verb chart uh, taped in the back. And the only reason I know that this is a Greek syntax chart is because I remember it's a Greek syntax chart. I can't read it. <laughs> it's it's too small. I'd have to get the old man glasses out like Captain Kirk. Um, well, actually, there, there. Okay, I can. I, there we go. I can see Granville Sharp's rule there. <laughs> but uh, accusative direct object, adverbial accusative, a measure of manner of relevance of termination. Yeah, there they all are. I need to go back over all that stuff again. Um, but like I said, what I'll do is I will link to. Jeffrey Rice's um, video on how to do this. And I am not a crafty type person, okay? I'm really not. So it can't be that hard to do. <laughs> if, if I can succeed, uh, it, it can't be that hard to do. But it's a really neat effect um, to have one color when it's closed and then a different color that like matches the ribbons or or the, the cover or whatever when you open it up. And unless you're just really, really, really lacking in care, it's sort of hard to mess it up. Um, so I, I would recommend it to you. you. You might find it enjoyable. Hey, it makes your Bible yours different than everybody else's type of a situation. So um, sort of neat. So I'll, I'll try to remember uh, next week when I bring the uh, NASB back to show you how that turned out with the uh, orange, because I've not done that color. Um, but it'll match the ribbons and the stitching on the brown cover. So that's what we're going to be doing. Okay, so that's uh, all I've got. I mean, there's so many things we could be talking about, uh, but we will let them sort of pile up for the next um, thing. Uh, oh, you're going to move me over there. Why are you going to move me over there? I don't know. Oh, I, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. So I guess I'm going to need to look over this direction. So uh, anyway, all right, let's. Um, actually, I just realized Rich hasn't been sending me any information as to who is online, what their names are. I got nothing uh, in Signal um, because... You forgot to do that, I guess. Okay, all right. So, and then you'll give me the rest of them, maybe. Uh, so, all right. Let's uh, let's talk to Lucas. Um, welcome to the dividing line. Hi, Doctor White. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Um, I really appreciate uh, your ministry and such, especially your advocacy for Sola Scriptura. It's really encouraging, but um. I just have an open question. I was just 
I was wondering if you can share some of your comments on Rushduni and his theology, you know, positions you agree or disagree with and why. Well, I, um, you know, Rich, Rich mentioned what the, uh, the topic was, and I, I don't claim to be any expert on Rusus Rushduni. Um, I've read a few of his books. I would like to have the time. I mean, I have Institutes of Biblical Law. Um, if I could get Institutes of Biblical Law in um, audio format, then I might find the time to work through it, but I'm not even sure that that's the kind of material that can be listened to overly well, um, to be honest with you. Um, but I know I, I was introduced to him uh, through my fellow elder at Phoenix Forum Baptist Church. I remember we'd very frequently have very interesting conversations in the parking lot after services, I don't remember if it was a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, but um, we were talking about divorce and remarriage, and he mentioned the fact that there were a number of sins in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, that brought about de facto divorce because it required the execution of the person who had committed the sin. And if your spouse has been executed, um, you're freed from the marriage because it doesn't say, you know, you know, death dissolves that union and it doesn't say why the death had to take place. Um, and in fact, the reality is that the, the law commands that if you, if your spouse seeks to, draw you away from the worship of Yahweh, um, that you're to be one of the first ones to not only report this, but um, in a really tough text of Scripture, be one of the first ones to cast the stone. And uh, so the, the point was, I had never even thought about the fact that the law would provide for... Um, a de facto divorce for idolatry. But it did. There, there wasn't any question about it. And I was like, I had never heard anyone saying anything about that. And he was like, yeah, I was working through a section of Institutes of Biblical Law by Rush Dooney and uh, ran into that and uh, had the same re reaction you did. I hadn't really thought about that. And so I know that I've heard that he had extreme views on this subject or that subject. I've not taken, kept a list of what they allegedly were. Um, but when I have taken the time to listen, because there's a lot of Rush Dune material available in audio, um, and to consider, obviously, on so many fronts, he was, like Francis Schaeffer, prophetic as to where the culture was going. He saw the impossibility of maintaining the myth of neutrality, um, which is which is what the church was trying to do for a long, long time was to maintain the myth of neutrality. And um, so, I, I have just generally very positive uh, 
I've had very positive interactions with what I have read. Um, and I know that toward the end of The Mission of God by Joe Boot, he provided, well, all actually all the way through the book, he provided a sort of running apologetic for Rush Dooney. So he would say, critics have said X, Y, and Z, but in reality, if you look at this, this, and this, so on and so forth. Um, so there would be much better prepared people to interact with the criticisms because I've, I've never been a critic and I've never had any interest in, in studying the critics to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but obviously, you know, there would be major differences in ecclesiology and, and, uh, I've been told that there was some applications of the Mosaic law that. You know, a lot of us have disagreements, even amongst theonomists, as to exactly how things should be applied and differences between Rush Dooney and Bonson. And but anybody living after Rush Dooney in that field is going to be influenced by him one way or the other. And um, so, I, I would say, well worth uh, obtaining and looking at. Uh, but I don't believe you have to. You know, I. I disagreed with Greg Bonson on stuff. Um, I'm just not one of those people that you have to you have to speak the same way and preach the same way and believe everything identical to everybody else, and uh, that gets me into trouble with a lot of a lot of people. So anyway, um, I'm not sure if that's helpful at all, but that's where I would come down. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um... It just like helps contextualize, you know, the way people view Rush Journey, especially since it's been nearly or exactly or over 20 years since he passed. Yeah. And just seeing the immense impact he still has um, is really interesting. Well, you know, you've got to I've got to admit, um, now I was a young man back then. But when I see men of the past who had the capacity to see what was coming long before it happened that had the ability to think things through and to not be um, limited by the, the current vibes and, and popular movements. We can look back now, we can see who they were, and there weren't that many of them. Francis Schaeffer and Rusus Rushduni were, were two of them that you now, you now listen to what they were saying and you wonder... Was this recorded yesterday? Because they're addressing exactly what's going on now. And to be honest with you, back then, if I had heard Rush Juni saying some of the things Rush Juni was saying, I wouldn't have had any context to even understand what in the world he was talking about. So in those instances, when you see people like that, you've got to give them some extra credit that they were so far ahead of their time and saw where the trends were going with an amazing level of clarity, not perfection, but an amazing level of clarity. Because as we sit around right now, it's easy to opine about the zaniness that's taking place, but it's much harder to have a meaningful exhortation to say, this is what we need to be doing because this is what's happening and this is what it's going to lead to. And therefore, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. It really, really is. So you've got to give him, you got to give him credit for that. And 
you know, I would, uh, um, I was at a conference in February and the Calcedon Foundation was there. And uh, I am quite certain that they would be, I'm quite certain that they would have uh, publications um, that would go far more into depth than I can in um, answering a lot of the common criticisms that are, that are out there. Um, And I'm sure they'd be happy to send those to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Way. I really appreciate your ministry and uh, God bless. Okay. Well, thank you for calling in today or zooming in today or whatever we call these days. (laughs) Keep listening. God bless. All right, so that opens up. You know, we used to, it was so easy in the olden days. That opens up a line at 877-753-3331, except we don't have that number anymore. So, and I don't know who does. (laughs) We still have that? Oh. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, I thought we had gotten rid of it. But notice I have it memorized. We finally threw the paper out that it was in here for ages oh so rich was rich is playing with cameras today i'm not really sure why i'm sure there was some i i think a preset didn't work right for him you have a phantom pop oh you see see i'm old enough now that i don't hear phantom pops it doesn't matter that that's why old people like LPs because they don't hear all the pops and hisses anyways. It just sounds great to them. Go for it. Um, okay, let's uh, go to our next Zoomer listener. Something I don't know. Uh, Jason, how you doing, Jason? I'm good. How are you doing, Doctor White? Not too bad. Hey, um, I'm glad I got a hold of you. Um, I've been trying to get a, a, on your radio program for a while. Um, but, um, here we are. I've, um, got to know Alma Allred through your, through your ministry with him. Um, and well, through your, your dialogues and everything and some of the videos that you've done about him. Um, and me and him has had a lot of back and forth. And I first came to know about Mormonism back in 2017 when my, uh, I went on a college of Winter Baptist college and our professor was writing a dissertation on Mormonism, and he took us up to BYU to have interfaith dialogues with um, with the people at BYU and UVU. And after that trip, I started tr- trying to get in contact with an older Mormon who would understand some <laughs> of the things that the LDS Church teaches, because frankly, not a lot of the younger Mormons understood. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, but I'm I'm having to laugh just a little bit because. Uh... Alma, Alma wasn't all that old when I first met him, and um, but now uh, I do refer to him uh, in in a friendly manner as one of the three Nephites, um, yes. because he uh, he looks like one of the three Nephites. Um, he and I both. Now he has white hair on his head. I don't have any hair on my head, but I've definitely got it on my chin. So. Uh, I could be one of the three three Nephites too if I was a Mormon, which I'm not. But, anyways, yes, um, uh, it's been wow. I'm trying to I'm trying to think back now, and I I think we talk about this every time we have dialogues, even though since he lives in Italy now, um, we don't have dialogues anymore. I, but I went I went to Italy uh, to visit him back in March. 
You went to uh, Italy to visit Alma Allred. Yes, it was it was awesome. Uh, He took me all around Italy. You know, he speaks fluent Italian, Um, and um, he took me. We, me, and him went to Milan. We went to Florence, Venice, and uh, all around Rome. And I've actually stayed at his house in Salt Lake a couple times. Uh, He invited me out, and um, and I've had a lot of me and him had. We've had we've sat in his living room. And had discussions for hours. And matter of fact, he gave me the binder of your, all of your his dialogues from back in the day, and let me read uh, read all of them. So, what was the what was the dates on those? Uh, back in the back in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, it was probably it probably started late eighties. Yeah, I, I would eighty nine. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's because we started doing. We started going up to Salt Lake around, well, 84 was my first trip up there, but we really started doing it about 85, 86. So, yeah, it was a few years in when uh, when I ran into him at the Southgate, and uh, that led to all those long, long letters. Yeah. Yeah, it's been... Well, you know, something about him that I really admire, and uh, in, in is about you as well, is your ability to talk to people who you disagree with but still uh, main, maintain a cordial conversation. Well, yeah, and, I don't know if he uh, told you. I don't know if he told you about uh, the fact that uh, when he was visiting uh, Phoenix once, I hope he doesn't mind I mention this, um, I was doing a, uh, a study at a rather wealthy friend's house, actually, and, uh, but it was on grieving because my book had just come out on the subject of grieving. And uh, Alma came to that study on on grieving and i mean you know i mean we all grieve whether mormons or anybody else obviously and um i remember standing out in the in the driveway of that home talking with him about especially about his uncles and polygamy and how many offspring they have and all sorts of very interesting uh, things like that uh after that particular encounter so yeah, yeah. In fact, I heard from him just a few weeks ago. He sent me some stuff about some things there in uh, in Italy. So, um, yeah, yeah, we go a long ways back. But I've uh, I've certainly I would it would be very difficult even if I was still flying for me to just go to Italy just simply to visit with Alma. So, <laughs> so that's um, yeah. Well, uh, can I can I ask you something about uh, dialogue with him that yeah. I've encountered and I want to get your perspective? So, when you're talking about um, the thing that I, I think I I get frustrated with him about is he understands the trinity better than most christians do right um however um when you bring up isaiah forty four twelve, and you and you and you talk to him about those verses the mental gymnastics that has to take place in order for his 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 view of uh, the, the mormon view to do that it just frustrates me to no end because I know he understands what we're talking about, but he cannot his 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 filter through Joseph Smith will not allow him to to view the Trinity the way that me and you understand the Trinity. Well, you know, and, now I'm I'm going to assume that Alma is going to be listening to this. Okay, if he's not listening now, um, he he certainly will. Uh, be listening to it, so we're both getting to talk to him at the same time, I guess, in in essence. And obviously, um, you know, the 
I'm not sure exactly how many dialogues he and I have done, um, not including all this stuff in the past, but I mean the ones at the university. I think it was at least two. May have been three. But anyway, it is frustrating for for that reason, and it manifests itself for, to me in the fact that in the last dialogue we had, I'm sitting there going, Alma, you know that the church is changing. You know that what the LDS Church is saying today and how it's presenting its theology and how it's presenting the temple ceremonies. And I always have to be careful. I mean, you know, you when you're in Utah, there's only so much you can say about the temple ceremonies without causing a riot. But th- those ceremonies have changed radically since he and I first met. And you see what the church is doing today, and I'm, I'm just like, Alma, you know that if in, in that first encounter that he and I had at the Southgate, if, if I had said to him that in 20 years the LDS church would be doing what the LDS church is doing now, culturally, in regards to homosexuality and all the rest of this type of stuff, he would have said I was absolutely nuts. But that's where they are. And and he knows that, and he's not the only Mormon that I have conversations with that I'm sort of like, guys, you you see what I'm seeing. You know, you you know it better than I know it. You live it. You know how much things are changing, and yet they just refuse to take the red pill. Um and you know, the only the only way that that, that can happen is it, you know, this is a spiritual issue. It's not. It's not how you can argue more effectively, or you know, if you are, if you could argue with him in Italian, that would make the difference. No, it, 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 it. That's not the issue at all. It is a spiritual issue, and it definitely sobers me, um, and reminds me to once again pray for him because I really like Alma. He's a wonderful. How do you? He is a really wonderful guy, and you know, the older I get, the more people that I know in various groups that are just wonderful people. There, I know wonderful Muslims, I know wonderful Roman Catholics, um, and the temptation is to just go, well, you know, it's it's all going to work out in the end. It really doesn't matter, but ne- neither one of us actually believes that. And Alma doesn't believe that, and I don't believe that, and and we can't, we you know we can't both be right. And so the the temptation is to just shove the differences under the table. Well, you can't, especially with Mormonism. It's, they're too big, they're too foundational, they're too fundamental. Um, but it does it is a sobering reminder of the ease with which many Christians, I think, engage in these topics. Um, you know, I, I had a back and I was having a back and forth with a, with a Mormon on Twitter this past week. Um, not a standard Mormon name. Now, Alma Allred is about as Mormon a name as you can have. I mean, it's just, you can't, you know, that, that's, that's right there next to Brigham Young, uh, as far as, uh, as being a Mormon name. This guy had an almost Arabic name and yet he was, he was doing the, the standard LDS apologetic stuff. And I mean, he just completely dismissed the book of Abraham and, 
And, you know, I can't remember having a conversation with Alma. Maybe I'm wrong about this, about the book of oh, Abraham. I can, t- I can tell you. About, okay, so I'm sorry for interrupting. No, but, please, please go ahead. Um, the, I've had that conversation with him about the book of Abraham. And he says that he believes that over time we will come to find out that Joseph Smith's got a lot more right than what the critics say about the book of Abraham. It, it, does he do that by dismissing the Egyptian alphabet and grammar? Um, he, he he said that well, he does, goes with the classic line of that it wasn't a it wasn't a translation of the revelation. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, okay, you have to it and and so I, I I would say this to Alma if he was sitting here with me. If you if we were discussing this in 1840 okay 1842 uh, or okay let's let's go after smith's death at 1850 if we are discussing this subject on the basis of what had been published at that point in the official church records in the times and seasons or whatever else uh these statements were found in there wouldn't be any question at all of what Joseph Smith was claiming in regards to his prophetic ability to translate the Egyptian language. And we would all recognize that this is directly related to his claims to have been able to translate the Book of Mormon itself. And Well, yeah, the, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's in the first, when you open up the Book of Abraham, it says that it's a translation. Yeah, oh, I, I know, I know. And and so what you're, what you're seeing happening and I don't, I don't know if this is happening with Alma, but what I'm seeing happening with so many Mormons with whom I dialogue now is a willingness to basically said, yeah, say, yes, I know what Joseph Smith said, but um, really we need to understand it in this way. And, and Alma knows that, you, you know who would have absolutely slapped him across the face? Um, for saying something like that was Bruce R. McConkie. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that was a different kind of Mormonism back then. And I can only hope and pray that, that at some point, um, the Spirit of God uh, makes Alma and every other Mormon who knows their history just go, wait a minute, um, th- I can't bend that far. I cannot... I cannot pretend that we're not changing that far, because we are. And uh, if if Smith was wrong about that, then all these other claims, especially the foundational claims of revelation regarding the nature of God, that are utterly unbiblical and so foreign to uh, what Christians have believed all along, um, that that there's no reason to continue to accept those things. But look, Brother, I uh, Alma is a good example of of why I, I tell people it's not a matter of having all your arguments in a line and being able to quote LDS sources and and everything else. Uh, and in fact, I've said on the program before that when we first met outside the Southgate, and he came up to me uh, and initiated the conversation, um. There was a spiritual element involved. There was a spiritual element involved. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, 
I keep looking down this direction because Rich put a speaker down there. So I first sort of feel like I'm talking to Jason. So I'm looking down toward where the voice is coming from instead of looking at the camera, which is really sort of stupid. Uh, but it's just human nature, I guess. But anyways, something spiritual happened in that situation. Um, I remember very, very clearly, and I think I've told Alma this, I remember very, very clearly having a very strong impression that I needed to stick to the central biblical issues that I knew the best in my conversation with this man. and Because he's, he's very brilliant. And he he is. He's very bright. And, and so I didn't I didn't go into anything in regards to LDS history or anything else. I stuck very much with the Bible and its testimony at that point in time, um, which is where I was strongest. And that was obviously the Spirit's leading at that point in time. If, if, if that first conversation hadn't gone that way, then we wouldn't have had all that, all those long letters and everything else that's happened since then over the years. So if I recognize the Spirit's role at the beginning, then I have to recognize the Spirit's role all the way through. And so, uh, Jason, your, your call has uh, reminded me to uh, pray once again and fervently for Alma Allred and to call upon all the Christians in the audience to pray for Alma Allred. Uh, I remember... Be and if and and if it means anything to you, I re, I remember the frustration that you're talking about, Jason, because uh, Alma is the fellow, and he'll tell you this. I'm sure he's probably told you this already. When I wanted to send him something, I I decided it was obviously irrelevant to send him any books on Mormonism or anything like that. He knew all that. He already knew all the arguments. I sent him the Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, and I just. My thinking was, here is an element of God's nature that, from a Christian perspective, is so different, it, it, it can't be understood from an LDS perspective. Well, he really liked the book, which frustrates oh, yeah. me I've all the more. On, I've sent him, because, I've sent him stuff. I'm sorry? Go ahead. I said, I've sent him stuff of, of uh, A.W. Tozer. Yeah. And he, and he, and he loved, and he... He likes all that stuff, um, but I still think when he reads things, he he reads it through the lens yes. of Joseph Smith and yes. not through the, the the lens of the New Testament. Yeah, and my 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 prayer for him is that he's gonna he's gonna realize eventually it's not really Joseph Smith anymore. the The church has moved so far from Smith that it's it, it's it's really something that does not have any historical connection any any longer to Smith. Unless he's going to buy some concept of development, you know, sort of like a Newman development hypothesis type idea under the power of the priesthood or something like that. But the problem, he knows this. He knows that when the church, in essence, threw Bigram Young under the bus for his racial comments, he knows that the vast majority of priesthood lines in the modern LDS church go through uh, Brigham Young. And so... He's got to, he's, you know, I just got to believe that he's struggling with a lot of these things, and we just want to pray that that will eventually lead to uh, a recognition that the the holy God that Sproul was talking about 
just can't work with an exalted man that lives on a planet that circles a star named Kolob. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that lens well, just know, isn't there. But, um, well, you know, one, the, one more thing, uh, if I may. Sure. So, um, me and you would differ on you're a Calvinist. I'm not. Um, and um, so, we, I think, I, and I appreciate your, your friendship with uh, Dr. Brown because y'all seem to have, uh, or he's not a Calvinist, and y'all are able to have that sort of relationship that y'all have. And so, um, and so that was a whole another topic for another day. I will, you know, if I had the time, I would like to speak to you about Calvinism, but um, that's not, you know, the reason for my call today. But um, yes, I would, and I want to say this, you know, on the air because I'm probably going to hear this. Um, if you're listening, um, I meant, um, I say this with all respect. I believe that the, the Joseph, the Bible, the Jesus of Joseph Smith is not the Jesus of the New Testament. And that I'm sorry that you have been lied to um, in the church has, you know, presented a Jesus that's not biblical. Um, but me and uh, James both uh, are in a, know the biblical Jesus. And we both pray that, that you come to see that. Um, and I, res- I respect you. You've, you've been very kind to me. Um, and so I just thought I would, you know, put that all on the open because I've said to him directly before. I said, my desire for you is that you come to know the biblical Jesus. And I've, I've said that straight up to him. Oh, sure. And so I've, so have I've I. not had, <laughs> I don't, you know, sugarcoat things. But um, like you said earlier, it is so easy to sometimes say, well, maybe this will all work out in the end. But when it comes to biblical truth, we have to stand on what we know to be true. And so, you know, you know that's why I, that's why I wanted to say that. Well, good. Well, Jason, I appreciate it. I hope uh, you'll uh, you'll pray with me um, for uh, for Alma Allred. And uh, if if Alma ever comes back to to uh, Utah, I'm sure that uh, Jason Wallace will be getting in touch with him and trying to drag him over the U of U for yet another dialogue. Uh, and uh, maybe you can make it. Up I would for that I would one. love to meet you in person one day. Um, I uh, I respect your work and I appreciate your your work on Mormonism. Uh, um and everything um and so and you also helped me in regards to the trinity because i used to be i guess um, my understanding of the trinity before was uh kind of modalistic and so right. i appreciate your your work on that as well excellent well um, excellent so, thank you jason for your call and uh i'm gonna be praying for for alma today and i hope you will too i will be all righty god bless you thank you oh that was we took took a while there but um that's because if, if you're not familiar with the dialogues uh, that we've done up in Salt Lake City um, and a number of them with Alma Allred and the fact that I've, you know, I've mentioned down through the years, you, you can talk to a lot of Mormons that especially today, especially today, that have no earthly idea what they believe. They have no earthly idea what Mormonism has taught in the past. And to be honest with you, I would really be surprised if even Alma disagreed with my saying that since the 19, over the past 20 years, there has been a systemic failure on the LDS Church's part in catechizing or training its people. Um, I was amazed at some of the conversations I had. The one night I was able to make the Easter pageant, uh, the one night that I was there, I was like, at a Mormon saying, I don't know why we're all disagreeing about this, because 
you know, we've all been baptized and we accept your baptism. And, and so why, why are we? And I'm, I'm sitting there going, you do? <laughs> what? No, you don't. Uh, we, we weren't baptized under some priesthood authority. I know what you, I know what the official teaching of the church is on this. Uh, but, but they just don't know. They just don't know. So things have changed. Things have changed a lot. And almost just a good example of a well-read Mormon who knows they believe. And you you have to, if you prepare for his level of Mormon, then you'll be ready for all the lesser levels of Mormons too. But uh, it, it's, it can be challenging. Anyways, we've got a lot of people to get to, so I'm going to have to pick up the pace here. This first one doesn't look like we're going to be p- picking up the pace. But um, anyway, let's talk with uh, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hey, Dr. White, good to be talking again. How are you? Oh, that, that, the other Paul. Okay, all right. That's How you doing? That's right, it's that Paul. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I hope you're, I hope you're, do you have sleeves on right now? I do. Fun, well, well, here's a funny thing. I don't, but I also do. I have my tank top, but I also have a nice and thick jacket on. Oh, it is winter down there, isn't it? It is, yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do it. Excellent. Well, uh, definitely relevant for your uh, for your coming debates with uh, Trent Horn because I definitely gained an interest in in when he started to um, what's the term like hitches hitches cart or whatever to the whole John C. Poirier his Theonistos work and what right. have you. Um, I won't do the esoteric Greek pronunciation system I use. So I'll just I'll just say that. Um, and uh, the big thing with me that I that I got an interest in is that. This is very, it's highly technical stuff, but it's very easy for when someone throws like, oh, look, this big, really advanced scholar has this uh, major work that proves that it doesn't mean uh, divinely inspired, despite pretty much everyone before the 21st century asserting such. Um, and the issue I can see <clears throat> is a related issue uh, from when I almost, I myself almost left the faith entirely back in like, what, 2017, because I was going neck deep into the super scholarly works on like, oh, the gospels aren't historical, they're anonymous, blah, blah, blah. And I was another layman who had no idea about these topics back then. Uh, and so it was just kind of just me versus these scholars saying things that I know and just overwhelming me. And thus, like, I didn't know what to do. And so I can see with countless other people, um, both uh, both Romanists and, and, and Protestant looking at this major work by a scholar. It's like, oh, wow, this is well beyond me. He, he must have some some kind of esoteric scholarly insight beyond my comprehension. So therefore maybe, maybe it really doesn't mean uh, breathed out by God or, or some, or some manner. So I wanted to ask, what would you say are some necessary principles, things to do, things to look out for, for laymen who are otherwise, they're, they're not linguists. They don't know Koine Greek or, or what have you. They don't do linguistic study. Um, what would you propose as principles for them to abide by when a work like Poirier's is kind of just shoved in their face as a proof, something that can help them like calm them down a bit and not get overwhelmed by, right. oh, well, it's this scholar, he says something massive. Like what, what can they, how can they still look at this work and at least do some level of critical interaction, even if it's outside of their, their field? Well, what you used to be able to start off with and it, because of the overwhelming amount of material that is being produced now, um, you know, there there was a reason why in Western thought, anyways, you had such a thing as critical review. That is, you would have 
you would have material published in scholarly journals, and before it would actually come out, it would have to be reviewed by other experts in the field. And unfortunately, uh, James Lindsay and his cohorts, uh, just about, what was it, 10 years ago now, um, demonstrated that the peer review system of Western academia has become a joke. Um, mm. It's become a joke for a lot of different reasons. Money is a big, 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 big part of those things. Um, you can't get published uh, outside of pushing certain narratives, outside of not touching certain things uh, in all sorts of fields. And that, sadly, even within the church, um, mm. that, that that's the case as well. So we used to have sort of a firewall to where if someone came up with something that was just completely off the wall, um, there would be enough pushback to stop something like that. The problem, the mindset in Western academia now is the weirder and more unique it is, the better. And so, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine anyone prior to the 1950s taking the gender studies area um, seriously, as, as even viewing it as having any merit whatsoever. Why is it accepted today? Well, because the whole system has been corrupted by massive amounts of government money and grants and and endowed chairs and everything else. And so the the thing that one of the things that bothered me about Trent Horn's use of this is okay, this comes out in book form in 2022. It has not been vetted as yet. And unfortunately, once it comes out in that form, there's no guarantee that it's going to be vetted in any formal fashion at all. Uh, I haven't yeah, yeah. found it yet, but I remember um, about four or five years ago, um, I'm going to have to dig it up. It's somewhere on my hard drive. Unfortunately, my hard drive is eight terabytes in size. Um, I was sent a paper. It wasn't a book, but it's a paper presenting a completely different understanding of Theodostas that had nothing to do with vivification, giving of life, anything. And it didn't have anything to do with being God-breathed either. And it was so off the wall, I don't remember what it was. I need to find it. <laughs> but the point was that that's how you get published in academia. You're not going to get published if you find further evidence of what has already been believed about the meaning of a particular term. You're not going to get published because... Well, that's already out there, so it's not unique, and so it doesn't matter. So the problem is, Western academia, when it comes to Christian theology, is fundamentally geared toward producing heresy. <laughs> because heresy will get published. Heresy's new. Heresy's, if it's old, we don't want it. If it's been believed before, who cares? And that's a real, real problem. Um, a, a really big problem, in fact. And so when you see something new, especially if something comes out in 2022, and I guess it came out in the UK in 2021, okay? So, but the English move slowly. Um, your first thought should be, this hasn't even been examined yet. Um, you know, you can get something published without it going through any kind of meaningful pushback or anything like that, you know, especially if you're, like teaching in a particular college, they want you to get published. And so you're going to, you know, follow all the, the lines to get that type of stuff published. 
there's there's been no time for there to be any critical pushback or response or review or anything else on it. So patience, uh, and this was known. Look, look, going all the way back in the West, no one would take something brand new seriously if it had not gone through years of being examined and being found to be solid. It just that was just how things were. There was no internet pushing you to do things at the speed of light. Um, but that's all changed. And so Christians need to be patient and go, okay, so someone's come up with a new a new claim. Um, the reality is that, for example, back in the 1800s, it was very, very common um, for people to claim that the Hittites didn't exist as a civilization. And the Bible just made it up. It was all fiction. Well, now we have all sorts of Hittite uh, artifacts. Um, they just hadn't been found yet. And so did people leave the faith in the 1800s? Maybe. Uh, that would I'd have a theological answer for that. But they didn't they shouldn't have because it was a premature thing. Or um oh there was another one that just crossed my mind and that's it just popped out too. There was another oh uh you know German scholarship was absolutely convinced in the 1870s, that the Gospel of John was written no earlier than 170, 175. Hmm. And then, I mean, that's, and that that was a consensus view. And then some British guys rummaging through a bunch of papyri that they stole from Egypt when the British were in charge <laughs> in a basement in 1932, I think it was. Um, and he amazingly, recognizes this tiny little scrap of papyrus about yay big is from the Gospel of John. And they send it to four of the leading scholars of the day on papyrology. Three of them put it at 125. One puts it in the first century. So that's why we dated around 150, 25 years either direction. Um, and an entire library full of German critical scholarship went up in smoke. Uh, by one single manuscript find. Okay, so stuff like that happens. And so you have to be patient and uh, you, you can't just go, oh, someone has newly come up with a new theory. Um, there, it has to be vetted over time. Um, these these discoveries, you know, the, the whole tomb story. Remember the, the uh, Talpiot tomb story? Um, most I people, do not. Know. You do not. Well, see... Now, I am crushed because that means that you did not read this book called From Toronto to Emmaus, which was okay. my no one ever bought it and read it anywhere ultimate refutation of the Talpiot tomb story, yeah. which appeared on Good Morning America and you know had all this media. What? What? Oh, yeah, yeah. They appeared on Good Morning America. I, not, no one's ever had me on Good No one ever will have me on Good Morning America. What are you talking about? Anyway. Uh, well, if any, you should cut me some slack. I'm only a 23-year-old Australian. <laughs> well, okay. See, so this was... Um, well, I'm not sure which is worse, the Australian part or the uh, other part, but... Oh, right, radio, mate. Radio, okay. Keep, keep <laughs> so, okay, so this happened when you were... Let's see, 
13, 14, 15, 16. You were seven. Um, okay. So I will, I will let, I will let this one slide. Okay. You were only <laughs> seven years old. And so I can understand why you weren't watching good morning America. And we're not concerned about theories based upon Gnostic gospels and all the rest of that stuff, though you might find the book interesting. Um, uh, because I dug up a lot of stuff. I wrote it in 17 days, as I recall. Uh, oh, wow. So the point being, uh, stuff like this pops up and then disappears, uh, sometimes within a few weeks and sometimes within a few years, and then nobody even thinks about it anymore. So be be aware of the fact that there is a bias in the Academy to produce material like this. Um, there is not a bias to filter it out. And so keep that in mind. Realize if it's brand new, it hasn't been vetted yet. And um, be patient and see when people start interacting with it. Basically, that's that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. <clears throat> Basically, just filter out the whole mindset of, oh, my scholars, they're these great priests of knowledge because that's that's the thing i think that really trips a lot of people up just yep the colossal modernist idea where well like the, the concept of a priesthood has never really been axed away since the oh, fall no. of like no the it's, all, it's all the science it's just, it's now it's all the experts the experts are the priests now yeah yeah no, yeah, no exactly, toys about it exactly yep yep you're right no toys about it all right brother 100%. i uh, appreciate it and we'll be uh, we'll continue chatting with you and uh keep keep that jacket on i heard it's been cold down there this year <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Keen to keep it happening. Catch you later. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Shane and uh, we'll try to get to Shane and Sway. I, I'm sorry. I can't. We'll, uh, there's no way I can cover Colossians 1.16, 1 Corinthians 8.6, John 1.3, and Jehovah's Witnesses um, today. Uh, so we'll just have to go with Shane and Sway. Are they still there? Okay. Shane. Go, go ahead. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. You yeah, there, so I was actually going to ask a question about what you thought about the assembly of God and wokeness. And just to give a little bit of a background here, I am a, a, a minister in the assembly of God, but very recently the kind of national structure has told the, the district and the sections, which are basically like state and county level type things in the denomination, they've told them, that they're going to begin instituting like a uh, an ethnic quota and like a gender quota. So every board on the section and district level is required to have at least one ethnic minority and one woman on the presbyter board. And of course, you know, on the district level and everything, they have these special ceremonies where they're recognizing and honor honoring, you know, ethnic pastors and just a strange emphasis on race and gender type things and and you can see these things creeping in to the denomination and uh before as you give your answer here i i'm pretty close with the presbyter in my section and i told him when he told me about this i said brother if this is the direction the denomination wants to go it's going to split right down the middle in 10 years and uh it seems like a lot of people just aren't aware of the issues i'm curious what your thoughts and insights on that kind of stuff well are. you know the only thing that would be, would be worse than it splitting would be it not splitting and everybody just going along um because uh the reality is you can see 
I did a debate with Barry Lynn on uh, homosexuality at a PCUSA church in 2001 on Long Island. And it was one of the last PCUSA churches that was trying to hold out against the wholesale collapse of the denomination on sexual morality. And of course, you know, it, it has collapsed totally. The PCUSA has on that, that particular subject. And so, you know, those last faithful churches, they just had to leave. They had to go, they, they had to go someplace else. Um, and so I would, I would hope that there would be enough people to fight the fight. And if, if a split needs to happen, then a split needs to happen because, you know, obviously I've got all sorts of disagreements with my Assemblies of God's friends on various issues. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you're going to be talking about the Spirit's ministry in the church, how in the world can anyone ever come up with the idea that the Spirit of, that the gifts of the Spirit of God can be ethnically and genderly um, uh, derived and limited. I mean, can't the Spirit of God build the church in the way the Spirit of God des- des- determines to build the church? I, I, it's just, to me, my argument since 2018 against this woke movement has been it fundamentally misunderstands the basis of Christian unity, which is found in the fact that whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, male, female, slave or master, Colossians chapter 3, there is one renewal by one spirit. And it is a fundamental distrust, a lack of faith that the Spirit of God can build the church as the Spirit chooses to do so by gifting the people he chooses to gift to say, well, actually we have... uh, we have to have this many of this color and that many of that color as if you can tell the spirit of God how to build the church and where to build the church and how fast to build the church and everything else. It, it is, it just, it's, it's a, just a complete abandonment of how Christians used to understand the unity of the church and where it came from and that renewing work of the spirit as the defining mark of what the church is. And now, now it's based on, uh, DEI requirements and and in fact I tell you brother uh, I'm saying this to more and more people follow the money because um, big denominations have big bank accounts they have to deal with banks and those banks are requiring these DEI diversity equity inclusion inclusion parameters to give meaningful interest rates. People don't know this, but when yeah, they that's ask, very you know, interesting. Why, I had well, never thought about that. Why, why did Budweiser do what Budweiser did? Because their people holding their loans told them to. And why is Disney doing what Disney's doing? This is coming from the banks. It's coming from the financial sector, which is completely woke. And so look at, look at, if you're a presbyter, someone who has some connection to, you know, might be able to get information, find out where they're doing their banking. Find out where they're getting their loans. Find out who's got that kind of influence. Because you can't really defend this stuff from any kind of meaningful theological standpoint. Uh, so where is it coming from? Where is this imp- impetus coming from? 
uh, it would be interesting to find out. It would be interesting to find out because it's it's not coming from trusting the Holy Spirit. It may be cu- coming from trusting Wells Fargo. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I am curious to see how it plays out. You know, the AG has gone kind of both ways on issues. They made the right call on the homosexuality issue a number of years ago. But of course, they, you know, there's been women preachers from the very beginning. And I'm just I'm very curious to see where it falls on this issue. And and luckily, the kind at the local church level is congregational and it's what's called a cooperative fellowship. So Mm -hmm. without getting into all that, local churches are shielded from that. But the overall structure I mean, it's if it's going down this road, it's not going to be good for sure. So no, no, but it, it it's happening in the SBC as well. It's the exact same stuff. It's the exact same. Yeah, stuff. it seems like the AG is about one or two sessions behind the SBC on every major issue. <laughs> you want to know what's going to happen? Just look at the SBC and move forward four years, yep, and that's yep. kind of where we're going. I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, Thanks, I brother. appreciate it, brother. Thanks for the phone call. All right, real quick. Sway, we're going to have to do this fast. We're already running late. <laughs> okay, how you doing? Yeah, um, I just wanted to run a couple questions by you because I hold to the monarchy monarchy, and uh, the monarchy in view, and I do reject Calvinism because I hold to more of Martin Luther's view on the Trinity. He rejected the Trinity, said it was man-made. And a conceived idea. Wait, whoa, 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 Martin Luther or Martin Luther King? Martin Luther from Martin, Germany. Martin Luther didn't reject the Trinity. That's silly. Martin Luther Sermons, Volume 3, page 406. Martin Luther rejects the Trinity. He no, says. No, no, no. That I, I don't know where, yes. what, what your sources are, but uh, Martin Luther. My source is um, Martin Luther Sermons, Volume 3, page 106. Well, okay, no. so let's go on to the next one. Since okay, you don't uh, wait, 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 no, no. I teach church history. I'm a professor of church history. I've taught it for 33 years, and you are wrong. Luther did nope. not reject exactly the doctrine of the it Trinity. Says, okay, Martin so I'm, I'm not going to let you just throw... Rich, rich, doctrine. gone, 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 gone. Not, not even going there. Um, that kind of stuff is just silly. Um you don't just throw absurd stuff like that out. Can you imagine the? Can you imagine the number of citations of Luther on that topic uh, that would be out there if if that were the case? Uh, inter- internet resources are always dangerous. So, anyways, uh, sorry we couldn't. Uh, I guess Tim's probably gone, huh? He's still there. All right, since we let's. Uh, well, I don't know, Tim. What what can can this be done briefly, or are you looking for information on a lot of stuff here? Uh, I I can make it quick. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So my question is: uh, Jehovah's Witnesses talking about Colossians one sixteen, how it says he created all other things. <laughs> what? I laughed because it's not all other things. Oh yeah, yeah. I I was just saying. Do you think in trying to prove Jesus's eternity, I should point them to stuff like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where it says, Through him all other things were created, and John 1, 3, where without him was not anything made that was made? Okay, yeah, we, we can do this. Um, well, first of all, 
be aware of the fact that the New World Translation of Jehovah's Witnesses at Colossians 1.16 has gone through various stages. Are, are you familiar with the history of this? Uh, yeah, I think so. So you know that initially it didn't, it just simply said all other things. Christian scholars raised a huge hue and cry, and so they put it in brackets, mm-hmm. and it stayed in brackets for decades, and then about four or five years ago, they removed the brackets, and it just simply says all other things. Um, with our new uh, transcript search engine at aomin.org, you might be able to find uh, where I have addressed this particular topic in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Maybe just putting Colossians 1.16 in will we'll pull up what you need. But I have gone through how the subordinationist Jehovah's Witness understanding of Colossians 1 um, fundamentally capitulates to the people that Paul is warning the Colossians about. It actually turns his argument on its head um, so that he's no longer arguing against the Gnostics, but arguing with the Gnostics. And so it's an impossible mm-hmm. way of understanding Colossians chapter 1 when you turn Paul around so he's no longer arguing against the Gnostics, he's now arguing for them. So uh, I, I go through that, I've gone through that on the program before, and and the nice thing now is I may not have to go back over it again because it should it should come up. That is a pretty exhaustive database of everything we've done on this program back to 1998. And I know I've covered it a number of times uh, since then. So yes. um, And then first Corinthians eight, that's a excellent, that's, that's the Shema of Deuteronomy six being expanded out in light of the incarnation of Christ. And uh, yes, John one, three, um, all of these, but just keep in mind that fundamentally with Jehovah's Witnesses, what you've got to get to, what you have to present to them eventually, is the evidence that Jesus is identified as Yahweh. Because a Jehovah's Witness can always find a way to, uh, in essence, excuse um, the passages that call Jesus God or Creator, or they can find a way to go, yeah, but in a representative way or in a lesser way or something along those those lines. If Jesus is uniquely identified as Yahweh, then as Jehovah, then the game's over. It's it's done. All the rest of that stuff doesn't make any difference anymore. And I've talked to enough former Jehovah's Witnesses that that was one of the things that was a regular statement. And that was, you know, I could I could come up with ways of identifying Jesus as a God. But if Jesus is Yahweh, if Jesus is Jehovah, then that's it. I'm I'm done. Uh I I have to change my my perspective. And so that's you always need to end up getting there one way or the other because, you know, the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' eternality, yes, he is he is said to be the creator of all things and all the rest of stuff. But in Hebrews chapter one, it is said that he does not change in comparison to creation. 
And that's a quotation of Psalm 102, 25, 27, which is talking about Yahweh. So that's the ultimate evidence that you're going to be able to present um, that leaves most Jehovah's Witnesses with without much way of responding. And um, uh, so that's that's the direction to go. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your ministry, and you have helped me so much in so many ways. So I appreciate it, Tim. Thanks for, thanks for getting in touch today. All right. God bless. All right. God bless. All right. There we go. Um, always interesting when we do open phones, and we never get done on time. <laughs> it's just, just the way it is. So thanks for listening to the program today. Uh, we've got lots of stuff to be talking about on the next program, I am sure. We only have uh, three weeks, I think. Uh, a little over three weeks that we will uh, be here before we're back in the RV. Please pray that we will have the RV back. It's kind of getting repairs for little something. Rich doesn't seem overly panicked yet. He's 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 cool. Got good people working on it, and they know when we need it. Need to have it done, hopefully. Um, but yeah, we they needed to do some roof work uh, on, and you got. Uh, there's a lot of things on an RV that need to work. The roof is definitely one of them. I proved that on my first trip in an RV when I destroyed the air conditioner uh, two two hours after getting the RV. Anyway, uh, long long past history that we don't need to go back into now. All right, we will see you next week on the program. God bless.